So for the past 14 weeks, if you're, if you're new with us this morning, for the past 14 weeks, we've been walking through the letter of 1 Peter together. It's this uh, book of scripture that the apostle Peter wrote to some believers living in Asia Minor as a sort of field guide to help them live out their faith in a hard world. And this morning we come to verses 18 through 22 of, of chapter 3. And, and regarding the passage that we're studying this morning, the, the usually dogmatic Martin Luther had this to say. Martin Luther was just black and white on everything. I mean, he had a, he had a clear opinion on everything. This is what Martin Luther says about our text this morning. This is a strange text and, a certainly, and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. Okay, so that's what Martin Luther says about our text. One commentator I read said this. He said, this intriguing passage is fraught with problems that obscure its interpretation. Text-critical problems, grammatical ambiguities, lexical uncertainties, theological issues, as well as the question of what literary and theological background the author is assuming. Let me translate all that jargon. This is a head-scratching text. This is a hard text. There are some weird phrases in here that maybe make us uncomfortable. It, it would be easy for us this morning to get lost in the details of this passage and to miss the big picture of what Peter is, is aiming to do. So let me try to give us a little context as we dig in this morning to frame up the big idea of what's going on. In, in, the, in the section we were just in, Peter finishes in verse 17 saying this. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And so what Peter's doing here is he's saying to these believers in Asia Minor, hey, you might suffer as a believer in Jesus. And it's better to suffer as one who's doing good. For, it's better to suffer for following Jesus than to suffer for, for sin, to suffer for doing evil. But he's telling them that suffering's a real possibility. And in fact, many of them were well aware of this. They had already begun to experience mistreatment. So you can imagine how discouraging this might seem to a first century believer. They're trying to do what's right. They're trying to live in faithfulness to Jesus. And it's leading to being slandered and ostracized and mistreated. In their efforts to follow Jesus, they're being hit with all kinds of setbacks and opposition. Maybe you can relate to this. Perhaps you're at the end of your wits this morning because try as you may to live for Jesus. It just seems like the enemy keeps getting the upper hand in your life. Maybe it feels to you this morning that the harder you try to follow Jesus, the more that suffering just comes at you. One of the things I love about the Bible is how honest it is with us. That it doesn't hide those sorts of feelings from us. In, in Psalm 73, the psalmist begins to share his own struggle with suffering. And he admits this. He says, as for me, my feet almost slipped. My, my steps nearly went away because I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes on and he says, they have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like everyone else. They're not afflicted like most people. Then the psalmist asked this question, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? 
for I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. You hear what the psalmist is saying? God, it feels like following you is losing, not winning. I look out in the world and I see wicked people. I see people that aren't trying to follow you and it just looks like they're prospering. And here I am trying to follow you and it just feels like I'm losing. You ever found yourself there? Where if you were really honest, you would say to Jesus, Jesus, following you feels like losing. When you're in a spot like that, it is easy to begin to lose hope and to doubt God. You begin to doubt his sovereignty, that he's really in control. You begin to doubt his goodness, that he really does love you. And Peter, it seems, senses some of the discouragement these believers are feeling. And so what he aims to do in these verses is to offer some divine perspective on their trials. He wants to offer a divine perspective on their suffering. And so the passage before us is a divine glimpse into reality. It's a heavenly perspective on things. Do you remember the story in 2 Kings chapter 6 when the king of of Aram, the Aramean army, is, is trying to attack the people of God? They're trying to wage war against Israel, but, but the prophet Elisha keeps getting, keeps getting these prophecies from the Lord that he delivers to the king of Israel that are basically like uh, he's two steps ahead of the king of Aram. And so every time the king of Aram tries to attack, the people of God already know. And this keeps happening until finally the, the, the king of Aram says, uh, so he pulls his advisors and he says, one of you is a spy. One of you is giving the king of Israel a heads up. Which one of you is working for Israel? And then one of his servants says back to him, he says, no, my Lord, the king, rather Elisha, the prophet, he hears what you speak in your bedroom. God's given him a download on everything that you're planning. And so the king said, well, I want you to go find where he is so that I can capture him. We got to get rid of this Elisha guy. And and, and so when he was told that Elisha was in Dothan, he sends like his whole army to go capture Elisha. And so Elisha's servant wakes up early the next morning and he goes outside and when he looks around, he, he, he sees that they're surrounded. And he runs back inside and he says, oh, my master, what are we going to do? Because we're surrounded by horses and chariots. And then Elisha said, don't be afraid for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. To Elisha, or rather to to Elisha's servant, it seemed like the, the situation was hopeless. It seemed like certain doom. But in reality, the Arameans were outnumbered by God's angelic army. What what looked like unquestionable defeat was actually guaranteed victory. And in essence, this is Peter's message to those believers in Asia Minor and to us this morning. This passage functions as a word of encouragement to Christians who feel like they're outnumbered and surrounded. Things are not as they appear. It may seem like you're losing, but in reality, God is five steps ahead of you setting up his checkmate. 
We see this most clearly in the life of Jesus, and that's, that's where Peter's going to run to encourage these believers. He's going to run to the life of Jesus. He's going to run to the suffering of Jesus, because in the suffering of Jesus, we find encouragement for our suffering. Jesus' own suffering, it provides for us. It proclaims victory to us. And it invites us to pledge our trust in him even amidst our suffering. And so we're going to see this morning how Jesus' suffering is a provision, a proclamation, and an invitation to pledge our trust in his promise. So let's look at these one at a time. First, Jesus' suffering, it, it provides for us. It's a provision for us. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. In light of the fact that these believers in Asia Minor were suffering for doing good, Peter wants to remind them first that Christ also suffered. Hebrews 2, 17 tells us that, that Christ was made like us in every way. And this includes the trials and the tribulations and the hardships of life. It's helpful, isn't it, to know that we have a sympathetic Savior, that we have a God who is able to empathize with us, that Jesus is, is compassionate. He's, he's described as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, who's been tested and tried in every way as we are. Very simply, Jesus gets us. If you're here this morning and you're suffering, Know this, Jesus understands you. But more than that is going on here in this passage. The comfort goes further because Jesus' suffering does more than provide a, a certain level of comfort that he can empathize with us. Peter says that Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. When Jesus suffered, he was doing more than identifying with us. He was dying for us. Peter is saying here that Jesus suffered as, as a divine payment plan for the redemption of the world. That, that, that when Jesus died, he died for our sins, which meant that his death was in the place of sinners. Theologians refer to this as a vicarious sacrifice or a vicarious atonement. Romans 6.23 teaches that the wages of sin is death. That, that what every person owes for their sin is, is eternal separation from God. It's, it's judgment. And yet the good news of the gospel is that Jesus imposed his life in the place of sinners. That he suffered our wrongdoing, he suffered in our place. He paid the debt that you and I deserved to pay. Sometimes we sing it, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. His suffering was our salvation. And so what Peter seems to be saying is that in your suffering, look to his sacrifice. In Romans 8, 32, the apostle Paul asks, if God did not even spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him grant us everything? 
If God has done the greatest act of sacrifice in giving his son for us, how will he also not give us everything with it? Whatever you find yourself facing in this life, your suffering is no indication of God's absence. God didn't spare his son for you. The the death of Christ is the definitive statement on God's commitment to you. In fact, it, it could be that in your present suffering, God is actually doing his best work in your life. This is certainly the story of Jesus, isn't it? I mean, do you remember how the disciples responded in the immediate aftermath of Jesus' death? The Apostle John tells us that they were all huddled together in a, in, in a small room with the door locked. Translation, they were scared to death. We have that passage in Luke 24 where the two disciples are on the road to Emmaus and they're discussing with one another. They're actually, they're lamenting with one another. We had thought that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. In, in that moment, in the immediate fog of Jesus' death, the disciples were terrified and confused. All hope seemed to be lost. But we know that something else was actually happening. What seemed pitiful and tragic was actually powerful and triumphant. And so friends, listen to me. In in moments where it seems that hope is lost and that the enemy has won, the cross assures us that God is actively at work redeeming the world. You just need to know that. You need to believe that. If Jesus' suffering meant your salvation, then your suffering cannot mean defeat. His death not only provides for you, but secondly, it also proclaims victory to you. Jesus' suffering proclaims victory over us. Look at verse 18. Peter says, He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now here's one of those confusing phrases we encounter in in this passage that we have to deal with. What in the world is Peter talking about when he says Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison? Who are these spirits and where is this prison and when did Jesus proclaim and what did he proclaim, right? There's all kinds of questions that that come up with this. And and, and honestly, throughout the centuries, there have been all kinds of interpretations on this. There are some that believe that what's being said here is that Christ went down to the realm of the dead, to, to Hades, during the interval between his death and his resurrection. And there's actually subgroups within this view that think Jesus was doing different things when he went down there. Some would say that he went to offer a second chance of salvation to those who perished in the flood. I don't think that's the case because I think scripture's really clear that man is appointed once to die and then judged. That there is no second chance. Others say that he went to declare salvation to Old Testament saints. So those who had died before Christ came that Jesus went to declare his salvation to them. John Calvin actually said that Jesus went to do both, to proclaim the fullness of grace to the righteous dead and the condemnation to the wicked dead. 
A second group of interpreters think that this verse means that Jesus preached through Noah to Noah's contemporaries in Noah's day. In other words, Jesus was was preaching, he was speaking through the message of Noah to the people in Noah's day who were imprisoned in their obstinance and their unbelief. St. Augustine held this view. So now we have Calvin and Augustine disagreeing. Great. Let's keep moving. A third group believes that Christ proclaimed not to human spirits, but to angelic spirits or demons. And at this point, you understand why Pastor Tim Keller says regarding this passage, this is a passage that you would never hear preached if the minister was able to choose the passage. (laughs) Right? We're here this morning because we're walking verse by verse through 1 Peter, and this is where it put us. But since we're here, let's see if we can try to unpack what Peter's saying. Here's my take. The word spirits used in the plural in the New Testament is never used to refer to humans. It's always used to refer to non-human spiritual beings. And so for this reason, I take what Peter's referring to here not to be human spirits, but to be fallen angels or demons. And more specifically, I take Peter to be referring to the demons who influenced the terrible wickedness on the earth in Noah's day, who were put in prison or in Hades until the final judgment. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 4 seems to reference this when it says that God didn't spare the angels who sinned in Noah's day, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. I think that's what Peter's referring to here. If you go back to Genesis 6, you'll find all kinds of craziness happening that we're not going to get into this morning. We we will not discuss the Nephilim this morning, okay? (laughs) But you'll find all kinds of wickedness going on. And in verse 5, it says that when the Lord saw the wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of humankind was, was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. In this moment in human history, it seemed that evil was winning. The world was chaotic. It was full of sin. So much so that it says God lamented making man and that he decided to destroy the world with a flood. And you have to believe that in this moment, the demons rejoiced. It makes me think of that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan goes to the stone table. If you're unfamiliar with the stories, Aslan is a lion, and he's the Christ figure in these Lewis stories. He's the creator and king of Narnia, but but in his absence, Narnia has come under the spell of the evil white witch. And so to rescue Narnia, and more specifically to rescue a boy named Edmund, who's acted traitorously both to his siblings and to Narnia, to rescue this boy and to rescue the world, Aslan chooses to yield his own life on the stone table to the white witch. Because Edmund, according to the deep magic, owed his life for committing treason. And as Aslan approaches the stone table, 
hundreds of these monstrous creatures surround him and the white witch tells them to tie him up and they, they bind him and they muzzle him and they begin to humiliate him. They begin to shave off his mane and they kick him and they jeer at him. And then the white witch takes a stone knife and murders the great lion to the cheers and the celebration of the creatures. They think they've won. In that moment, they think they've won and they, and they depart to go prepare for battle against the forces of Narnia as the body of Aslan lay dead on the stone table. And Susie, Susan and Lucy, Edmund's two sisters, were hiding and watching all of this from afar and they eventually come out of their hiding place and they, they approach Aslan and they begin to weep over his body. They spend the night just in a, in a terrible, miserable daze, crying until they can't cry anymore. And then it says... Just as the first ray of golden sunlight began to peek out over the horizon, Lewis narrates it this way. He says, at that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. Then the stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there, and there was no Aslan. Lucy asks in this moment if this is more magic. And from behind her, she hears a voice that answers, indeed, it is more magic. And the girls whirl around to see Aslan alive again. And to assure them he's not a ghost, he breathes on them. And then he explains, he says, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Deeper magic that made death itself start working backward. That'll preach, right? But here's what I love. Here's what I love. After Aslan explains what's happening to the girls, he, he invites them to mount his back and then he takes them on this romp through Narnia. There's still lots to be done. There's still a battle that has to be fought. But to be sure, at this moment, the war is already won because Aslan is alive. He's unleashed the deeper magic through his resurrection. And so he takes the girls on this wild ride through the Narnian countryside. Now, what is Lewis up to with this picture? What is he doing here in this depiction? Here's what I think he's up to. I think that he's giving Aslan a victory lap. Aslan is parading his triumph over death. He's parading his triumph over the white witch. And I think the same thing is being depicted in our passage this morning. When Jesus goes and proclaims to the spirits in prison, what he's doing is declaring definitively his victory over the cosmic forces of darkness. Jesus is going for a victory lap. The forces of evil that had wreaked havoc on the earth, that had caused all kinds of chaos in God's creation, are served notice once and for all that the war is over, that Jesus is alive, that he has conquered sin and death, and that he has been raised to life, and that he is the victor. That's what's happening here. This proclamation is a signpost of certain doom to Satan and all his minions. And it's a signal of victory for the kingdom of heaven. If you go to Washington, D.C., one of the memorials 
that you can visit is the Marine Corps War Memorial. Maybe you've seen it before. This memorial depicts a key event in World War II when a group of Marines successfully planted a USA flag on top of Mount Suribachi, which signaled the successful capture of the island of Iwo Jima. That island was one of the last remaining islands in the Pacific Ocean that needed to be captured to bring the Pacific campaign to a successful conclusion. And so on February 23rd, 1945, about 10.30 in the morning, U.S. soldiers all over the island were thrilled by the sight of a small American flag flying from atop Mount Suribachi. The flag signaled victory. It said to everyone on the island that the Americans had taken the high ground. And friends, listen, in the same way, there's an empty tomb outside Jerusalem that signals Christ's victory to every single one of us. We, we look to the resurrection of Christ and we know that the war is won. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 tells us, and when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave, all, forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Believer, listen to me. No matter what you're facing this morning, no matter what present hardship is coming at you, no matter what suffering you may encounter in this life down the road, here is reality. In Christ, you have been brought from death to life. In Christ, your sins have been forgiven. The record of offenses, offenses that condemned you before a holy God have been nailed to the cross. The debt is paid in full. Jesus has conquered all your enemies. The rulers and the authorities have been disarmed and disgraced publicly. Jesus has triumphed over all of them in his resurrection and he proclaims his victory over them to us. In Christ, you are more than a conqueror. You are victorious. In other words, the stone table has been cracked in two and Aslan is on the move. Narnia will be restored. The world will be healed of all its wounds and everything sad will come untrue. That's reality. That's the promise of the gospel. The Apostle Peter is inviting us to see things from a divine perspective this morning. Jesus has declared his victory over Satan, sin, and death. And so what's left for us is to patiently trust in God's promise to save. That's the last thing here. Jesus' suffering invites us into a pledge of trust in him. Pick up with me in the last part of verse 18. Peter says, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and power subject to him. In Noah's day, when, when the world was filled with evil, God, it says, patiently waited until the ark was built. He was holding back his judgment until the ark was ready. And don't you know that during that time period, as Noah was building the ark, he endured the mocking and the ridicule of his peers day after day. Noah suffered in his building the ark. He was maligned. He, he was mocked. The world went on with its wickedness. But as Noah continued to trust in the Lord, finally the ark was completed and God had him and his family enter in. And it says that God himself shut them in the ark and then the waters came. And so when, it's, when it says, when Peter says Noah was saved through water, what he means is that as the flood waters rose, Noah and his family were safe inside of the ark. They were safe inside of the means that God had provided to deliver. Everyone who went inside the ark was spared from the deluge, but everyone who refused to enter was overwhelmed by it. And Peter says Christian baptism corresponds to this. How so? Well, baptism pictures this same reality of salvation through judgment by entering into God's means of deliverance. Just as Noah and his family were safe inside of the ark, so will everyone be who enters into the ark that is Jesus. He is our ark who saves us from God's coming judgment. Everyone who hides their life in Christ will be delivered. So when Peter says baptism saves you, he isn't saying that the act of baptism itself saves you by itself. I think he makes this explicit when he gives the caveat, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. What he's saying when he, when he uses this language of a pledge of a good conscience toward God is, is another way to translate that is an appeal to God. Peter, Peter's saying that when, when you appeal to God by faith, he saves. And so what Peter is inviting believers into is to trust in Jesus, to trust in his word, to trust in his promised means of deliverance. Even if you're suffering in the here and now, even if it's hard right now, know that a day is coming when God has fixed a day, when he's gonna judge the world. And if you pledge your life to him, if you hide in Jesus as a refuge, if you acknowledge that Jesus has died for your sins, that he's risen victoriously and conquered Satan's sin and death, that Christ will come and in that day you'll be spared from the judgment because your life is hidden in Christ. And Peter reminds us that right now Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God where he rules over angels and authorities and powers because they're all subject to him. Believer, the message here is clear. Whatever it is that you're facing, it's going to be okay if you're in Christ. Look to his suffering. Hope in his victory. Trust in his promise. Jesus told his disciples, in this life, you will have suffering. But take heart. Be courageous. Because I've conquered the world. Let's pray together.